Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Roz Davidson, Director of the Positive Parenting Company Limited and a national consultant and trainer in the UK implementing CODA, a 12-week therapeutic program for women and children recovering from domestic abuse, which focuses on providing skills to the mother to support the child and addresses self-blame, attachment, what abuse is, and emotional regulation across themed sessions. We speak with Roz today about course of control, its signs, impact, and what she and other advocates in Britain are doing to ensure that domestic abuse is taken seriously and perpetrators are held to account. Welcome, Roz. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me. Well, we had you on the show a year ago for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Oh, yes. And, and now we have some more things to talk about. Let's start with the Positive Parenting Company and CODA. Tell us about how you started Positive Parenting Company and what CODA is. Okay, so I had been working for the local government here in London, in Lewisham, for 27 years, doing a lot of frontline work with families, particularly around behaviour. My area of expertise is working with young children. And what happened was, as I was working frontline and managing what we have is called children's centres, I started to find that a lot of the women that were being referred in for parenting support, domestic abuse was the, the, the main issue. So after working for such a long time in the public sector, I decided in 2013 that actually my focus was really more around the domestic abuse work and helping to support that and, and stop, you know, trying to manage the symptoms because that's what we were doing for a long time. So that, in essence, really was why I became independent so that I could explore my, not only my own learning but also bring those services to the front line that, again, at that point were quite, you know, they're not really they're quite sparse. There wasn't a lot of, of programs and work doing, particularly with children and focusing on the behaviour that we were seeing and not necessarily addressing the cause. So I started that in 2013 and then I was still working part-time for the local government and building my company and being commissioned to do pieces of work. I trained in the CODA programme, which is Children Overcoming Domestic Abuse in I think about 2014, just as I started my company. And I've been delivering that frontline ever since. And within the last three years, I have been doing some commissioned work for local organisations to support them with their domestic abuse offer and also training professionals nationally to deliver the CODA programme as well. And I'm working with the national charity AVA, to help them with their strategy around the programme and also digitalising it during this pandemic. So, yeah, that's where I'm today with, you know, a lot of experience with different sectors around their response and also helping to set up their domestic abuse response within their organisation. So that's mainly where my work is focused. So, you know, the fact that there's... This program for both mothers and children, I think, is unique Mm. uh, because in the U.S., a lot of the, even though we have the Violence Against Women's Act, the agencies that receive that funding have to be non-discriminatory. And uh, the fact that you're you have a program that's focused on mother and children. Well, that mothers, I think, is unique, but then children as well Mm. because I think that. Too often here, we've talked about this on the show regularly, there's not enough of an understanding that children who may not be directly physically hurt 
were injured are still being abused. Mm. And even their presence, whether they're witnessing domestic abuse or they're aware of the dynamics of domestic abuse and coercive control, that there's harm that's happening to them. Mm. So, you know, is, is Britain just more evolved than we are? How did this interest in children come about? So, I mean, this program originated in Canada and AVA, which is the national charity that I'm a, an associate consultant for, hold the license to train and run that program in this country. So I think, you know, it's originated in the 90s and it came, I believe, to the London specifically in a about, I think it was 2006, if I remember rightly. So, you know, it's been here for quite a while, but again, it's about that development, isn't it? And we've had things like uh, the law around controlling and coercive behaviour. Obviously, the domestic abuse bill has just recently been passed. So I would say, you know, that the work had been done over many years to get to this point whereby we actually recognise children as victims of domestic abuse in that bill and it places that on a statutory footing in terms of response. So, you know, there's obviously been a lot of lobbying, a lot of, you know, reports, research into children and we know they experience it even if they're not directly impacted in the same room, let's say, that the abuse is happening um, we know 90% of children are either in the room or in the next room when this is happening. And I've interviewed hundreds of children for assessment process of this program and they do hear it, they do see it, and they don't understand it. So, you know, we know that it impacts them emotionally, physically. And so their social impact is is quite immense, really, when we look at this kind of isolation as part of coercive control. So, yeah, there, there's, um, I think there's been progression. Um, there's been more investment and a recognition now through the bill that, you know, children are victims, should be treated as such in terms of the abuse that they've experienced by the perpetrator. So we'll turn to the bill in a moment, but I want to start with, the program itself, the 12-week program, CODA. Mm. And I've seen what the themes are and the learning objectives for each yeah. of the, the sessions. Can you just walk us through what the mother gets and what the child gets? Yeah, of course. So basically what we have with the program content is it's a concurrent program. So what we're looking for is we know that children learn best with their mothers. We know that attachments and bonds are impacted significantly where there's domestic abuse. So we want to create an atmosphere, a safe and secure and confidential environment for the women to be able to support their children. But to be able to do that, they need that support themselves as well. So each week the themes are, there's a process as we go through those 12 weeks. And obviously at the beginning, we get off by knowing each other and, and doing that kind of, you know, that social work to start to get to know each other on the programme. And then we start to actually go into the abuse and the experiences of the abuse. And we do activities like, what is abuse? Because, again, often the, the physical is highlighted and, you know, the coercive control, those emotional and psychological aspects of the harm are not always recognised. So, you know, we really look into that with both the woman and the child, but the, the work we do with the woman is to support them, to support their child in their recovery. Then we look at our feelings and, you know, validating them and understanding them. Often when there's abuse, we see extreme emotions, you know, extreme upset, extreme anger, aggression. And there's lots and lots of feelings that amongst all of that, that children are also going to experience. So we give them a, a kind of a narrative of vocabulary with, you know, different feelings. And then they get the opportunity then to think about what we call iceberg in their feelings and 
you know, on the outside, we may show that we're okay. But on the inside, there's a lot of suppressed emotion around their experiences. So, you know, that again, with the women, we're looking through the child's eyes and helping them to understand, you know, the impact and obviously uh, the support that we can give the children as we continue. We then do a, a week where we look at a cartoon. It's called Mikey and Jules. And it talks about what it's like for that child when it's happening. It's a cartoon. And for the women, it's a reflection of actually, yes, they probably did hear or see what was going on. But we were so obviously preoccupied with the perpetrator that we wouldn't necessarily recognise that. And what we see with the children on that week is they start to say, hey, that happened to me. My God, you know, yes, it's a validation And also, again, that, you know, I'm not on my own. It's not just happened to me. The rest of the weeks, kind of from week five on to week 11, is really looking at that safety planning and keeping everybody safe and how we keep safe and how we keep children emotionally and physically safe, not just calling the police. You know, that's often a a narrative that women may be given, but that's not a safety plan because sometimes it's not safe for them to do that based on the consequences of the perpetrator through their perception. So we really need to think about, you know, holistically what safety looks like and support children to develop a safety plan, which I think every child should have to know what to do when they don't feel safe. We look at anger as a healthy emotion and we tackle the issue of anger and abuse that often are, you know, kind of connected for those that have experienced abuse when actually they're very separate things you know anger's an emotion and abuse is a choice so you know we go through that with the children as well for them to have a place to talk about those feelings of anger and and then we look at conflict resolution and how we might be able to when we have problems in the future how we might be able to resolve them using a framework that we encourage the women to use obviously with the children Um, And then as we come to kind of, you know, week nine, we look at loss and grief. Often that, again, is not considered in terms of the relationship that there's a loss for that woman because we were in love with that person and had children. It's often disregarded and not, you know, highlighted as an important part of recovery is that we are going through that process at the end of a relationship and, and and also things like, you know, the dream of the family and, you know, what the future held, that's a loss. And we need to acknowledge those losses and, and validate those for the women and for the children. So at that point, we then start to get the people attending the women and the children ready for leaving us and going on to the next piece of work. So uh, the last few weeks are around self-belief, empowerment esteem and then also the exit is a a celebration and you know a discussion with the women about you know what might be next so it's a really progressive piece of work over time you know it, it kind of goes up to a peak and then we'll come back out the other side so that all throughout that process you know we want to create that safe confidential space because a lot of times, you know, women and children would not have been able to talk about it or had not wanted to talk about it because of often the stigma around, you know, the perceptions of, you know, why don't they just leave? You know, all of those old myths and inaccuracies around abuse. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing programme and we've seen some fantastic pieces of work and outcomes for these families post group as well so so just to clarify for our listeners this program is for women and children who have left the relationship or can they still be in the relationship no this is a recovery piece of work and the perpetrator can no longer be living in the home however the child can still be having contact okay that part was I mean, we've discussed this before, but that part I want to make sure people are clear about because you talked about a safety plan for children. Yeah. And that 
from many jurisdictions, I guess, that I'm aware of in the U.S. at least, it tends to be very controversial to be talking about the abuser in a way where they are named to be unsafe and that you have to create a safety plan because, you know, we, we've had this whole series on PAS, parental alienation. So it could be deemed as this program is in itself complicit in alienating the child from the abuser father. Has that happened? Have you been no, accused no, of that? No, no. Uh, this, this program comes from a feminist approach and it, it's in line with what we know in terms of statistics that, you know, women are disproportionately abused by men. And, you know, that that is a fact. So we're not trying to influence the child's relationship with the father, because, again, that will be ongoing. What we're trying to do is educate the child about responsibility, about, you know, behaviour about understanding our emotions and that, you know, we can be hurt in many different ways. It's not always physical. Emotionally, we can be hurt too. And that's what abusers do. They hurt people. So, you know, whoever that might be, and we always have to consider the fact that potentially they may be in an unsafe situation when they go to contact. You know, they may be in an unsafe situation if you know, there's a new abusive partner, you know, we can't predict the future, but we can prevent, you know, the children from feeling like they don't know what to do because they don't know what to do. So, you know, children need to understand that and and women alike as well. Anybody that's not safe. It, it sounds like you're trying to help build strong executive functioning skills and emotional intelligence. I mean, with regard to executive functioning, you know, decision making, but also yes, with regard to emotional intelligence, healthy boundaries, being able to set and enforce them. Of course, all of us need in society and some of us who are not in coercively controlling relationships or abusive relationships might benefit from it. It seems like this is something that mm. is worthwhile to expand to the larger public because many people from the prevention side you know, have tried to identify certain archetypes of people or victims that might be more likely to be targeted. Do you feel like there is such a profile? Absolutely not. You know, a very good friend and colleague of mine once said to me, domestic abuse has no face. It can happen to anybody at any time you know, there is no discriminatory approach to domestic abuse. So I think, again, it's often these inaccurate perceptions that will change the narrative. But domestic abuse is a very complex area, particularly, obviously, in, in the climate that you know, we're in now in the pandemic, whereby isolation is, is affected tenfold for those women still in that situation and also, you know, post-separation abuse continues through contact so you know for us it's we're dealing with belief systems as well and living and experiencing domestic abuse affects the brain you know trauma affects the brain and and children are starting to develop their belief systems at six so if the norm is an abusive environment with an abuser you know, that that then will, will continue unless we are giving them some kind of education and and space for action, you know, space for reflection and, and a, a confidential and safe place to talk about their experiences because, you know, these children, like I said, I, I could cite many uh, children that come to mind immediately through their assessments whereby I think, my God, this is the first time you've ever spoken about this and they don't want me to go. They literally just want to keep talking to me about it. That tells me everything. They don't know who I am. I'm a stranger, but I'm creating that safe place for them to understand that I will talk about the abuse. I will ask you questions, but I'm doing it in a, a you know, obviously a child appropriate way. 
but we do talk about it and it's okay to talk about it because not talking about it often again leads to you know later difficulties in terms of emotional regulation you know that executive function like you talk about the brain is almost being preset at that point yeah I, I mean the reason I asked about is there a profile is because I just had a conversation with a guest Christine Cocciola who oh, yeah. is a a social worker, a clinical social worker, and studying for her doctorate in, in clinical social work. And she mm. mentioned, I can't actually, I can't recall the, the name of the study, but she mentioned that there was a study um, where they interviewed victims and provided them enneagrams, personality tests. And there was some profile that was about like openness. And, and that was uh, sort of along the lines of wanting to give people the benefit of the doubt. And that kind of thing. So, so those, I don't have the actual study, but those kinds of belief systems or personality traits make you more vulnerable, I guess, because you want to, you know, believe the good in other people and you might give them more of a chance than you would otherwise, even though the red flags are still there and you're checking them off, but you're just not acting upon them. And I mean, I haven't seen that piece of research. I'd be really interested to read it, definitely. I can only talk from my experiences of the work that I've done with women and children. And I don't, personally, I haven't seen any traits that I think, oh my goodness, you know, that that that, that would profile somebody. I've worked with women across many different, you know, cultural backgrounds, you know, levels of education. It, to me... There is no defining factors I have seen. But then again, am I looking for that? You know, what I'm doing is assessing their eligibility for a program and also obviously where they are in their journey. Well, let's maybe we can get to get to this question, get to the answer another way. Uh, What are some of the points of resistance that the mothers experience when they're enrolled in this program? Are there parts of the curricula that they struggle with, that they are challenged by accepting or, you know, internalizing? Yes, I will absolutely say that that is a recurring theme that I see is that women blame themselves. I see that a lot, but that is what the tactics are there to do. It works, you know. So when yeah. women blame themselves, we already know mm-hmm. from Jessica Taylor that society mm-hmm. blames women, but that's a, Absolutely. That's, a, that's a manifestation of sexism and misogyny yeah. culturally. So to the extent that women have internalized that message, it's mm-hmm. a strong manifestation of internalized sexism. So wouldn't that be an indication? Like someone who's aware of their own internalized sexism has a consciousness about it is going to potentially resist more those messages? I don't know whether I necessarily have seen that. I think what I've seen is that that the abusive tactics are so sophisticated that actually, you know, when we look at uh, Biderman's chart of coercion and understand that, you know, these were recognised with prisoners of war and, you know, assign them quite, you know, intact almost with coercive control you know I think it's more about the abuser than it is about the woman and you know anybody can be abused anybody can find themselves in an abusive relationship and nobody chooses that it it is you find yourself in that uh, relationship and often without understanding of how to get help and and the, the the tactics are such that it is your fault everything's your fault so of course you know if we talk Terry over the next three years and then I start telling you my name's Anne and I insist on that I guarantee by the end you'll be calling me Anne even though my name's Ros so you know it's that that I see time and time again is this confusion and this 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 lack of understanding of what's happening and I think that can happen to anyone I, I don't know whether there's a particular profile or a particular cohort that I would say you know it happens to them more so or you know I see this a lot more I think you know 
intersectionality is is often you know with multiple layers of discrimination from maybe ethnic backgrounds with no recourse to public funds yes you know but again it's an another form of abuse whereby the abuser will use that as a tactic to maintain that control so i think it's more about what the abuser does than what we're doing i'm so glad that you pointed that out i think from mm-hmm. a meta perspective in this conversation that was my tendency you know mm. to be this tension between prevention and response you know yeah. and the prevention should be wholly on the perpetrator side there should be no burden of that prevention to be on the victim side so thank you for for pointing that out but let's let's turn to the children so you were talking yeah. about victim blaming there's that you've seen that pattern amongst the women blaming themselves. What about the children? What are the areas that the children struggle with in this program? So I think there's three key themes that I see time and time again is that the children also blame themselves. And that, again, we have to think about it as a developmental model in by where these children are in terms of their functioning, their age, uh, their understanding And, you know, we know that children who have experienced domestic abuse over multiple developmental milestones and features are going to be impacted, you know, later in terms of being able to process and and having that higher executive functioning of their brain because of the trauma. So firstly, they blame themselves. And in some way, it is something they've done or haven't done that is making this abuse happen. The second thing is that they will try and stop it. Um, So again, disproportionately, I'm seeing that in terms of our evaluations that children think they need to stop it. And then the last thing is that they won't call the police or any, any services for fear of the repercussions from the perpetrator on the mother and on them. So again, it, those are the three key themes that I see. And also, obviously, we come across children that may have a traumatic bond with the perpetrator. So that, again, in itself, often a bit like Stockholm Syndrome, whereby, you know, the person that's hurting me is the person protecting me. You know, this is their dad. And again, we're hardwired, aren't we, in terms of our parenting to, to you know, love them and uh, believe them. So it just becomes quite normalised for these children. So I would say that is quite obvious when we're working with children, when we might see that traumatic bond. And like we talked about before, Terry, we're not there to say, you know, your dad's to blame, he should have done this. You know, we're there to say, actually, we're all responsible for our own behaviour. And, you know, it's a choice if we hurt someone and it's a choice if we resolve that conflict in in a non-harmful way you know we're not telling them we're just giving them the education so that they can start to process and think about you know their behavior towards others when there might be you know a problem that needs to be resolved you know are you using are you hurting somebody you know not just hurting them physically but are you calling them names or saying unkind things that's still harmful that's still abuse but with children, we call it hurting and fighting. So that the narrative obviously is, is child appropriate. Can you tell us what measurements you use to assess change over the course of the 12-week period? Yeah, so uh, there's there's many different measurement tools, but they're not specific to domestic abuse. So we with the AVA who have the license for the program, they offer Things, you know, the the strengths and difficulties questionnaire and the DAS, you know, there's lots of different tools that people can explore. However, what we find works best is almost an organic evaluation that was developed. I I developed it alongside uh, my colleagues in AVA to because the thing is, children don't want to ask questions when there's domestic abuse. I'll tell you 100 percent. They would have been asked a lot of questions. And the same with the woman. So we really don't want it to be about, you know, we need to get all these outcomes. So we kind of just narrowed it down to, I think, five or six questions that are looking at what their beliefs are. 
do you think that sometimes it's okay for mum to be hit? Do you think it's your fault when the hurting and fighting happens? Do you know what to do if you don't feel safe? Do you find yourself getting angry for little or no reason? So we're looking at emotional regulation. We're looking at, you know, blame, responsibility, uh, safety. But it's really interesting, some of these outcomes, because we give a, a scenario as well. So we ask them what they think, firstly, about their beliefs. And then we look at a scenario about, you know, a brother and sister and they can hear stuff going on. What would you tell them to do? And what you find is there's a real cognitive dissonance between these children in terms of what they think and what they would actually do. Um, and often their answers to that question are different to the answers to their own. So it's fascinating the process and understanding that children are, are constantly critically thinking and looking and scanning and vigilant. So what we're looking at is that belief change. We're looking at that, you know, have we managed to, throughout the process of the work, help children to not blame themselves, that they believe that it's not their fault? Do they know what to do if they don't feel safe? You know, those are the measurements that we're using, but we're actually in the process of a whole piece of development work around it at the moment. So again, that may change as time goes on. So yeah, that's what we're using at the moment. And it's very specific to the program, obviously, and the outcomes are in line with the aims aims and of, of the program at the moment. So it, it's quite difficult in terms of, you know, tools for measurement, because often we're not asking the questions. And we're, yes, we're looking at health, um, well-being and, and mental health, etc. But actually, there is something around shame, there is something around blame, and responsibility and safety that aren't always, you know, appropriate with some of these other measures. But, you know, again, there's there's quite a few out there that Ava would support organisations with. It sounds like also, because I, I believe I've seen some of the results of your surveys, you're trying to assess whether there's the mindset has shifted to mm. accountability, basically, to appropriate accountability. And from what I remember, your results are very positive, like overwhelmingly positive. There is that shift from, you they know, really very, very low uh, response, high blame, self-blame to high yes. accountability by the end. Yeah. And again, we're not saying your dad's to blame. That is not the message. And I don't think that's a healthy message anyway, because we know these children are still having relationship. We want them to be safe. We want them to know what to do if they don't feel safe. But we also want them to be accountable and responsible for their own behaviour from this point, because actually that influences them as they grow and develop into, you know, within society and their place within that. So, yeah, we 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 are not perpetrator blaming, if that's a thing, I don't know, but that's not the purpose. It's responsibility and understanding that and also having an understanding of, of what's happened to you, you know, it's so confusing for anyone that's experienced domestic abuse. So we hope to be part of that journey of recovery and support as they obviously go on and look at the next steps in their, their journey. And so let's talk, let's move to your work with the PSA timekeeper. Yes. <laughs> this is an amazing and unique piece of art, I think, but also, you know, just it's, I think it's like 23 minutes, something like yeah. that, 23 yeah. minutes, but it touches upon, you know, the mother, the child, it was not um, violent incident centered. It was centered on course of control. And it really, I think it was like a horror film in a way, you know, built upon the, the tension that someone in that situation would experience. So tell us about how that opportunity came about and your role in it. Well, I mean, firstly, domestic abuse is horrific and it's abhorrent. And I think, again, we really, when we first got this funding through the Home Office, it was about children affected by domestic abuse. And as a partnership um, across Lewisham, we looked at you know, what did we need to do? What could we offer? Obviously, we had the CODA program already. 
but we really wanted to look at that holistic approach of of work and we delivered lots of training for professionals around coercive control uh, the effects of coercive control on children we done some domestic abuse champion training we delivered the CODA program and trained professionals in that and the freedom program for women and we also had a program called caring dads which is for perpetrators and it's based around their parenting and making it safe for that child and also again accountability is quite key in that Um, and I really like that program because their strap line was if the child has to deal with him then we have to deal with him because we often send children off into contact and we don't know what their experiences are and and again if they get into new relationships and they're still um, you know abusing women then that again means that that child is is not in a safe place. So it was really important for us to have that holistic approach and, you know, make it safe for children. That's what this is all about, about it being safe for children, that particular piece of work. And what we recognised was that there wasn't really anything out there that uh, focused on one, coercive control and two, the impact of children. So we felt it was really it worked well with the overall kind of targets for that piece of funding. And so the commissioners in, in the team went ahead and obviously got in touch with Chris, who's the director and the uh, producer of the film. And we started to put together, you know, a storyline based on Chris's discussions with women, with professionals, and also his discussions with me around you know, those nuances with coercive control that often, you know, we we don't recognise or think about, particularly with children being used as part of the abuse. So that's that's the, the narrative about how that came about. And then obviously I was a, a script consultant for it and I was on set with the child to support the child through the process, along with one of my other colleagues as well. She was there too as a therapist. And yeah, it was, it was, we wanted it to be powerful because again, often people are looking for violence all the time and that's how people get hurt. And it's not, you know, it really isn't. And it's this kind of, this kind of film for me highlights, you know, only in a a very small way in terms of the, the narrative around domestic abuse, obviously is, is very complex, but it just, Want we just really wanted people to look beyond the violence and start to think about what does this coercive control look like? How do children become used as a tool by a perpetrator? And again, children don't willingly do that. You know, children are coerced into doing that. And that's what we hope that film really kind of highlighted. And also, you know, the the degradation, the humiliation, the isolation alongside the the specific uh, direct tactics as with the timekeeper of time in the mum and it being a game at first and then it becoming actually there's consequences here for my mum and realising that through that process. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of what we achieved and watch this space because there may be some more. Well, I think that the PSA really depicts domestic abuse as intimate terrorism. Mm. And that is something that many of us have been advocating for us to use as a term to reframe or to append to coercive control, to give people an idea. Coercive control, it sounds so neutral. It sounds not as harmful as intimate terrorism, not as scary, right? And intimidating Mm. that phrase. And a lot of the language that we're being asked to consider and adopt these days by the domestic violence establishment is about trying to decenter the victim and survivor and to center the trauma and the past history of the abuser. You know, so there's this leveling. And so I think I like the term intimate terrorism because Mm. I, I don't know, has you found anybody who's oh, yeah. seen it that, that disagrees with it that when they I when mean they... again what we've got to remember is we're dealing with people's belief systems as well so depending on their experiences and you know 
potentially experiences of domestic abuse or abuse, it, it's really difficult to, not everyone's singing from the same song sheet, that's for sure. But certainly I relate to that intimate terrorism because that's what it is. And, you know, you are terrorising and causing unknown and long-term harm through your behaviour and your actions. And I think I, I understand, you know, things are slightly different in the US in terms of your description of, of what the parameters are. But I have very clear views on domestic abuse. And yes, you know, if a perpetrator is saying, I need help, I need help, well, let's offer it. But if that isn't working and they continue to abuse, you know, what do we do? We're just giving them a pass because they've said, I want to change. You know, change comes from within and you have to acknowledge that you have a problem. And a lot of perpetrators don't do that. They blame the woman still. They don't take responsibility. And that's part of the whole coercion you know, and that control. So, you know, for me, the proof's in the pudding. So, and I've been doing this work for a long time now and um, I haven't met one yet. Well, you know, when you when we talk about abuse as a choice, as, as you referenced mm. earlier, it's a choice because of a mindset and it's not coursework or even threats of violence or, an actual incarceration may not be enough to change someone's mindset, right? Because mindset is not something we don't go to, you know, racist, white supremacist and anti-Semites, you know, and expect them to not be anti-Semitic just because we lock them up. It doesn't work like that. And it's a real, it's a real difficulty in terms of, you know, you will have people that are sympathetic to perpetrators and that, again, may come from somewhere, you know, in their belief system and in their experiences. So, you know, for me, it's really important that, you know, if somebody wants to change, that, yes, we can provide that support, but you need to change. And if you're not changing, then I'm sorry, you know, what are we going to keep doing? Expecting this change to come and, you know, Lots of people get stressed. Lots of people lose their job. Lots of people drink or take drugs. But actually, they don't all abuse their partners. And that's the difference. So the excuses that often we hear for abuse are that. They're excuses. Because I've been stressed, but I don't hurt my partner. You know, I think it's really important that we recognise the the definition, which is it is about being in a relationship and harming your partner or familiarly in the family environment that is targeted and they're not out abusing everybody they meet on the street. You know, it, it, it has to be understood in that way. And I think women and children are the priority. So I, I want to just make sure everybody who's listening to this actually watches Timekeeper. So I want to just highlight and call out something that's in this PSA that I think is really unique, which is that it was trauma-informed. It depicts mm-hmm. several in several parts of the PSA, the child engaging in emotional regulation techniques that were offered by the teacher. Talk more about what that's called and what, what it is that he's doing. We, again, wanted to uh, look at those things that can help children to regulate when they're dysregulated, because we know when children have experienced trauma, often they will potentially be in fight or flight mode or being triggered. So we wanted to put in the film that actually there are things that we can do to ground children. Um, You know, a child that's dysregulated, and you may not know about the experiences of abuse. So a child that's dysregulated is telling us something, and we need to be able to be a trusted adult for that child to introduce them to, you know, soothing ways to soothe that lower part of the brain that will have, you know, flipped its lid as we describe it to children because of the trigger of the trauma. Um, So, you know, in that case in the film, you know, he runs outside after spilling that paint over and, and again being triggered by the milk and him then thinking, actually, I need to look around me. What can I see? And it 
enables him to, to ground himself to the point where he goes and wants to talk to that trusted adult rather than it, he be having a consequence for that behaviour, which I think is, you know, it's really important in the process of working with children that have experienced trauma. Because the problem is, Terry, a lot of the time we don't actually know what's going on. But if we are giving that child a trusted adult who they can talk to and can offer those grounding techniques and those soothing activities when they may be dysregulated and not see it as bad behaviour, uh, because often that's that's what, again, the trauma-informed approach tells us to think what's happened to you, not what's wrong with you. Um, so that, that kind of uh, learning assistant in that, that film was doing just that and trying to introduce those knowing that there's something here in terms of that child's behaviour and that observation that she had of that child. In terms of the reception for Timekeeper, have you been, is it even desirable to integrate it into your programme? I'm wondering how, how triggering it might be. Yeah, no. This, this, this was made for professionals. This was made to be used as a training tool and we have a, an additional kind of crib sheet that accompanies it, uh, whereby you can tease out some of those nuances around coercive control with your teams and to think about your own service and how, as professionals, we are coercively controlled by perpetrators as well and what that might look like. So, yeah, it, it's it's a training tool. It's not really something that I would recommend uh, women are watching particularly on programs but again you know it's it's you know it, it's available you know we're not restricting it, it in any way that people like yourselves and obviously the community want to watch it but yeah I, I would I would say it's a training tool and have you found I mean because there's a wide variance in the community of advocates and practitioners with regard to their understanding of coercive control, um, their understanding of domestic abuse in general, mm-hmm. let alone coercive control, and their willingness to even see abuse holistically and to move away from the violent incident model. Have you found that there's been a positive reception and shifting of minds? Or yeah. and if not, what are the what are the some of the commentary by people who are critical? I mean, certainly the overwhelming response has been really positive in terms of how it's captured and those that maybe have a a greater understanding of domestic abuse, certainly. I think it's kind of really opened some people's eyes to coercive control that may not have as much, I don't know, uh, input into um, in terms of their roles. So I think it's kind of having a mixed review there. I haven't really had anybody saying, oh, you know, this is inappropriate or I think people are shocked by it. And I think a lot of people have been triggered by it, which, you know, we're not doing it to set out because professionals experience domestic abuse, too. So we're not setting out. And we obviously have all of the narratives around the support that you can access um, within embedded in the film to support um, anybody that is watching it. But I would say most people found it very powerful, quite shocking, which actually for me is what we wanted to do because it is shocking. You should be shocked by what women and children are are experiencing. So, you know, I'm hoping in, in one way it's opened up this narrative and this discussion around coercive control as we move away from that violence and look beyond it because it's not always present. So what are you looking for? And, you know, what can you do to upskill your, your teams and, and your organisations to be able to recognise it? Because children don't know what it is. Women don't know what it is until we have the discussion. And that's um, what we find on the programme. You know, women recognising coercive control for the first time and knowing they've been hurt in some way and it feels painful but not being able to, you know, actually put their finger on what is this? Because for a lot of women, it's normal and well, it's not normal. Well, I, I'd like to turn to the domestic abuse bill 
what are your thoughts around what is positive and what is still missing? What what you'd still like to see? I think the positive is that post-separation coercive control has now been recognised. That non-fatal strangulation will now be a criminal offence, and that children have been recognised, and there's going to be a statutory definition of domestic abuse. It puts the the focus on services and responsibility for response. Um, I think that's a really good thing. I think, you know, there's things around migrant women, I think, again, could be strengthened. Um, there's not really much in there. Again, it's it's so new. It's just been passed within the last few weeks. And, you know, as it starts to get out into the sector and people are understanding it, in its its entirety, um, I think there's always room for improvement. But I think this is a start. And, you know, you have to start from somewhere. And we didn't have this before. So I think with the, the Domestic Abuse Commissioner, the National Commissioner, who, you know, she will now be in that position of driving, you know, the, the change. And, and with that bill as her, you know, kind of, way forward, I guess, to address some of these in inadequacies, inequalities, um, lack of service. And, you know, it's it's yeah, it's a start. You know, I, I know from I know from the advocacy work of women and survivors in the US that there's a long term, well hopefully for the most part, there's a long term strategic approach mm. to piecing out the legislation so that it's not all encompassed yeah. in one bill because it might be too much. So you're, there's a plan to build on it and strengthen it and you know, mm. test and maybe um, iterate, as we say. I certainly intend on taking what we've learned from you know, our friends in Britain and Scotland's you know, law mm. and what you have now in the new domestic abuse bill and using that as a starting point. There's no reason that in the U.S., we shouldn't use all of those, the aggregate of all of those bills and the intention of mm. the aggregate as a starting point to strengthen our laws. If you had a wish list of what's next, like with regard to training, for example, you know, a lot of people have training in these bills, but there's no accountability for the quality of the training, the people who are being trained, the content of the mm-hmm. training, the enforcement of the training you know, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts around training as an element of legislation and accountability? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think there needs to be quality assurance. I think there needs to be almost a mark of merit in terms of uh, the standards that we expect within this training delivery and also about who are the professionals signing up to this? Um, You know, what's the process they need to go to to get onto these programs and and then start delivering frontline because again it, it, it's not always obvious but as time goes on when you deliver you may pick up on people's beliefs that actually are not helpful or you know you may need to pick up on some discussions outside of training so you know we, we for me you know we need to get it as right as we can for the women and children so that starts with us having that accountability around what we're offering, how authentic it is, um, you know, what are the outcomes, the fidelity of the programs. You know, it's all those things I think that are really important. And I'm, I mean, I'm hoping, you know, the new commission, I mean, she's got a lot on her plate, you know, she's only just, you know, really started um, the work. But I think, you know, it's a great place to start with that kind of foresight of we have this now how does that look across the country what's already in place that works really well that's a strength I like to build on strengths and you know we can address those areas for development as we start to you know go through this process of I suppose auditing really and understanding what's out there and because everybody often you know, in local authorities set out their agendas and, you know, their plans are quite different. So it'd be interesting to see what Nicole Jacobs comes 
with next and, and and what her plan is in her role to address domestic abuse and you know ensure that this bill is front and center in in the work yeah i mean i can give you uh, you know anecdotally there are people and organizations that are offering training and mm. certifications that are questionable and for me if if you know you mentioned about the program coda is feminist in its framework. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. feminism is about understanding that there's structural sexism and abuse mm-hmm. is a function of that. It's a manifestation of that and the power system. So if there are trainings that desex or degender, you know, make mm-hmm. a create a false equivalence between male and female perpetrators, mm-hmm. if there are trainings that use the word consent mm-hmm. and coercive control in the same, you know, sentence. I think that's problematic because mm-hmm. there is no consent when you're being terrorized. Absolutely you're not. being forcibly <laughs> controlled, right? And so there's no consent and no choice. Exactly. Yeah. And so there are trainers who are putting forth those ideas that mm. I think confuse the narrative. And then the, th- mm. the third thing is if they're also re- offering restorative justice for mm. survivors as an alternative, as a path yeah. towards, you know either the the perpetrator being rehabilitated or getting restoration and and I think restoration isn't shouldn't be a goal safety and security and autonomy should be a goal for survivors a hundred percent and you know I can only talk on behalf of myself and my understanding and my experience but what I do know is that women are disproportionately abused by men we know that So, yes, that's not to negate the fact that, you know, same-sex relationships have abuse in them, um, you know, and obviously men get abuse. But, you know, often we have the added difficulty, the face of perpetrators posing as victims. And, you know, that is another nuance that often, again, from my experience, and I will only talk from my experience of, of working, I haven't come across a woman that presents as a, a victim that's a perpetrator before, but I have come across the latter. So uh, the, the the male presenting as a victim. So, and, and that will come through all my programs. So I can only go by what I see and, and what I understand and my own training and, and, and knowledge around the area. And I think, you know, what do you do about that? You know, how do we manage those situations where those messages are not helpful? And again, I know that, you know, many people will agree with those messages. What do you do about that? I think it's about education and you're right. I think it's about the right education. I think it's a standard of understanding and and, and learning that needs to be uh, accredited in some way, endorsed. I don't know. But I, I agree. I think it's important that we don't get those mixed up. Yes, thank you. And of course, you know, my perspective is if you have a feminist framework for interrogating and understanding, that power differential will be clear. Absolutely. Uh, so, Roz, we've come to the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series oh, yeah. of questions called the Engendered Questionnaire. Go for it. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think the long-term well-being, health, freedom, choice of, you know, women and children, you know, in general, that's what's at stake. A lifelong of trauma, a lifelong of recovery or oppression and, you know, the human rights, you know, daily women, are human rights are being violated and, you know, that annoys me because everybody's supposed to be afforded human rights um, and we're not. So I think that there's a lot at stake there and everybody has the right to live their life free from abuse in any way, shape or form. What gives you hope? I give myself hope because actually you you can't drink from an an empty well. So when you're giving and you're in the the realm of, of delivery, 
you have to keep your tank full. So I give myself hope. I believe that things can change and I will do whatever I can to make that happen. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? We can believe victims. We can stop victim blaming. We can educate ourselves and educate everybody, the community, and working together to do that with the same approach is is really important. Uh, I think we need to start making sure perpetrators are accountable and responsible for their abuse and that, you know, the focus is and start really focusing more on women and children because often that's where we do see change. Thank you, Roz. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Terry. I hope you keep us informed about developments in in the PSA. Uh, And we'll definitely be sure to share it with our community. Yes, that'd be wonderful. And um, I love being part of this community. So, you know, I'm here if anybody wants to have a chat or has got any questions about it, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to reach out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.